my dream would be that we could find a way to craft a message that combined active government with the idea of continuous reform and improvement um, and that we would sort of come to terms with complicated, flawed institutions that are inevitably flawed. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. This week, the U.S. government narrowly averted shutting down. Now, a debt default crisis looms on the horizon. This brinksmanship has been driven by Senate Republicans who threatened a shutdown and are blocking raising the debt limit as part of a strategy to undermine President Biden's economic agenda. Unless an agreement is reached by October 18th, the U.S. government will default on its debts for the first time in American history. How did government become the enemy? The simple answer is that Ronald Reagan ran and won the presidency in 1980 by declaring, quote, government is not the solution to our problem, government is the problem. President Reagan ultimately presided over three government shutdowns, the first time that shutdowns were used as a political weapon. President Trump took this scorched-earth political warfare to a new level, presiding over the longest government shutdown in history, 35 days, which occurred in January 2019 over disputes with Congress over funding his border wall. Trump's shutdown cost American taxpayers about $5 billion. According to Yale historian Paul Sabin, the anti-government movement that President Reagan rode to victory was actually inspired by citizen activists of the 1960s, such as Ralph Nader and Rachel Carson. He describes this improbable connection between 1960s liberal activism and the current anti-government movement in his new book, Public Citizens, The Attack on Big Government and the Remaking of American Liberalism. Sabin is a professor of history at Yale University and director of the Yale Environmental Humanities Program. I began by asking Professor Sabin how we went from FDR's New Deal to LBJ's Great Society and War on Poverty to Reagan's successfully recasting government as the enemy. That's a, that's a great question, and I think a lot of historians have struggled to try to answer it. And uh, there is a, a extensive uh, you know, historiography of other scholars who have written quite compellingly and importantly about the rise of the conservative movement uh, and how it uh, brought together uh, you know, people from the religious right and uh, business conservatives and, and others. Uh, but in, in, my, in my book, uh, Public Citizens, what I'm trying to uh, uh, bring forward is the uh, importance of the left as well in, in, this, in this story, uh, and that it wasn't only an attack on the uh, what I call sort of the, the, the big government liberal of the 50s and 60s that coming from the right, it was also coming from the left. Uh, and that many of those things that you describe, uh, well, particularly on the environmental side, which is a focus of my book, uh, that these were a major target of, uh, of liberals and people on the left attacking the government for uh, you know, what the government was doing. Now, it seems to me that the, the cent- one of the central features of that era that we're speaking of and that influenced people's sense of government is the Vietnam War. And that that did more than anything to feed the distrust of government. Um, every day, Americans were lied to about the progress of the war. Why do you focus your ire or attention on the activists? 
Well, I, well, I think that's a really good point about the about the war and, and also uh, the, you know, the, the importance of the civil rights movement. I think both were crucial for uh, leading to the creation of the nonprofit uh, public interest advocacy uh, movement. And it's not a coincidence that that many of the organizations that I write about were founded during the first Nixon administration between 1968 and 1972. For one, the Democrats were out of power and people were looking for ways to influence the government. Um, but also there was a sense that the, uh, you know, that the, the war was uh, creating a real sense that the government could not could not be trusted, that the government had to be held accountable uh, and there, there needed to be a, a counterforce created that could watch over and uh, hold the government uh, uh, to a true public interest. And so that was the idea of creating a, a public interest movement that was outside of government. And it's a very striking contrast to the New Deal period when the idea was that you would have these expert-led agencies that would represent the public interest. And so I think the you know, what this movement is doing is saying that the, the agencies are not uh, fulfilling that role. We have to create our own institutions who will uh, will play that role. I guess the thing that I would add, uh, you know, just the civil rights movement and its importance uh, is also really important, uh, is crucial uh, because it both, uh, you know, the government was both a target for civil rights litigation and activism because the government was enforcing segregation, uh, but it also was an inspiration for possible reform, that the government could be better. It could pass, you know, civil rights law. It could pass the Voting Rights Act. Uh, so there was a sense that uh, uh, both the government needed to be forced to do things, um, but that there was a potential for it to be able to do more. So you're, you know, this central to your argument is the idea that uh, by attacking government, by attacking the administrative state, um, the left essentially set the table for the right to come in. It was just awaiting a charismatic, telegenic figure, which Ronald Reagan certainly was. Um, but, you know, Reagan's message has had remarkable staying power. He comes to power in 1980. Um, it's 2021, 40 <laughs> years later. There is not a political campaign in America that is not wrestling with the ghost of Ronald Reagan. You know, who supports big government and who doesn't? What explains the staying power of Reagan's message long after Reagan, the actor and the president is left. That's a, that's, a, that's a great question that a lot of people would pay a lot of money to answer. Um, I, I think that it's, you know, one is the simplicity of the message and that uh, the way that it uh, offers a simple duality, you know, between uh, the, the market and the state and uh, and attacking the government. And, and part of what I write about in the book is the is really the Democrats failure to uh, articulate to, to be able to uh, articulate a more complicated message. And, and this is the failure of Carter. And I think one of the challenges that Democrats have struggled with since uh, what Carter was trying trying to do was to uh, combine two things. It was, it was really combine the active government of the 1960s, the idea that government could do important things for the citizenry um, with the public interest critique of government, that government had to be constantly reformed and improved uh, and held accountable. Uh, and, and this is a very difficult message uh, to say that we both need government uh, and we also need to be constantly improving it and watching over it. And sometimes it will do you know, terrible things. And I think that that has been the, you know, the challenge uh, for Democrats is, 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 is is how to communicate uh, that message and veering sort of back and forth, you know, between the different sides of either we're uh, just defending government and not acknowledging its flaws, or we're too focused on uh, highlighting the flaws. Uh, and uh, how do you communicate a nuanced message that government is vital, uh, but it also is flawed? Hmm. Um, you write that uh, in the 1970s, uh, you say it was as if liberals took the big government bicycle apart to fix it and then couldn't figure out how to get it running properly again. 
how could they have repaired that bicycle uh, so that it would work better? Well, that's 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 a really uh, great question, and and it sort of goes back to what I was just saying about the challenge of the message, uh, which is the taking apart of the bicycle is really the dismantling of the powerful uh, administrative state, this coalition between business and government and unions that was uh, was doing big things, uh, but many of them problematic, and that being uh, sort of taken apart uh, in many ways that we could go into, uh, and then the challenge was how to put it back together again as a, as a, as a functioning bicycle, uh, but one that recognize, you know, as I said, the flaws uh, of concentrated institutional power. Uh, and uh, they, you know, I think the Democrats have struggled uh, with that. Now, how could that have been done? I think, um, you know, one one aspect of it could be, um, you know, on the outside of the public interest groups, uh, perhaps being more willing to recognize uh, the, the, the um, you know, the limitations of government, the inherent limitations of government and the compromises that that inevitably result from trying to wield institutional power. And I think that sometimes the public interest movement held uh, the governing, uh, its governing body, governing entities up against uh, a level of purity that they would never be able to attain. And you can see that in the Carter administration, you know, when when. Um, Nate, Nate, Ralph Nader, who's on the outside, decides to stay on the outside to watch over the administration. Uh, shortly into the uh, into the Carter uh, uh, administration, he uh, attacks Joan Claybrook, who had been his loyal uh, side sidekick, uh, you know, main main ally, uh, and demands that she resign, saying that uh, you know she is failing the public interest movement. She's not living up to what she should be doing, and she should resign from this uh, this government. Uh, and by the end of the Carter administration, you know, Nader's saying, uh, you know, Carter Reagan, you know, what's the difference? How how what you know? And I th- and, and and you see the uh, the the attraction of Kennedy and then Anderson, you know, as alternatives. And I, and I think that there is a, a level of, you know, when you're on the outside, uh, able to just hold up your principles uh, and pursue them to in full, uh, there can be, uh, it can be challenging, you know, to accept that those who are trying to actually wield institutional power, you know, may not do all the right things uh, as well as they could. Well, let's talk about Ralph Nader. He's kind of a central character, uh, both as metaphor and as an actor in your book. Um, talk a little bit about, you know, the arc of his story for, you know, we're, we're probably your students uh, at Yale don't know much about Ralph Nader. He is a historical figure to them. So fill us in on the role that he played, but also sort of the complicated legacy as you see it. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Yeah, I use Nader as a, as a as a thread running through the book. It's not a biography of him, but he appears throughout the book and, and, and kind of uh, kind of think. And, and the reason why is because he's such a compelling, uh, he's such an important figure, but also such a compelling character in the way that he illustrates the themes. So Nader is uh, grew up in a restaurant family in northwestern Connecticut, a Lebanese immigrant family, and uh, always was you know grew up attracted to small town politics and uh, you know uh, town meetings and uh, independent small businesses. And uh, but but he he uh, is I, I, he he starts out. I, I associate him at the beginning of the book with people like Rachel Carson and Jane Jacobs, who wrote these big books uh, that were attacking uh, uh, the liberal uh, what, the, you know, the liberal coalition, um, whether it was on auto safety or pesticides or urban planning. Um, but where Nader, Nader is distinctive is that he then makes the journey uh, by the end of the 1960s into becoming an institutional entrepreneur, uh, and he creates all these organizations 
thousands and brings thousands of people into a public interest movement. Uh, and these are young people who are investigating federal agencies and writing exposés, and they're uh, involved in passing the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act and, and lots of other legislation, occupational safety and health, uh, uh, black lung, these involved with lots of different uh, legislative actions. And so it's really part of creating this, uh, this, this, this independent movement uh, of citizens who are going to watch over the government. Uh, by the end of the 1970s, Nader, uh, in many ways, is out of, becomes somewhat out of step with, with that movement because it becomes more institutionalized. And he is an anti-institutional person. He creates small organizations that are somewhat chaotic and messy. And, uh, and he has difficulty as they start to become more uh, stable bureaucracies of their own kind. Uh, but and then later, you know, at the end of the book, I get to the 2000 election, you know, when Nader runs as a um, he finally decides to get into politics. He's very frustrated uh, with the Democratic Party and he runs criticizing uh, Al Gore, playing a role in uh, in Gore's defeat. You can argue about how significant it was or wasn't. Um, but uh, but I, I think that it's this is part of the larger arc of the story, um, because Nader uh, even you know, going back to the 1970s, has a very ambivalent relationship to the Democratic Party, and uh, uh, and that then is really fully manifest in the 2000 run, uh, in which he is holding, you know, talks about the Democrats and the Republicans as Tweedledee and Tweedledum. You know, you can't really separate them. They're one corporately captured uh, political ruling class, uh, and. Uh, uh, you know, it, this is in some ways the ultimate expression of, of, a, of a holding the Democrat, the Democrat and liberal party up uh, against a purity that um, that they weren't able to meet. Do you kind of view Nader? Did you speak to Ralph Nader for the book? I, yeah, I did. I interviewed him a couple of times. Yes. Actually, I recently went on his radio show, which was quite an entertaining uh, experience, too. What does he think of your uh, analysis or takedown um, of him? Well, I mean, I think I think that uh, I think he's aware that there are some limitations. Obviously, looking around, you can't think that there's anything but some uh, uh, that, that didn't accomplish all that was uh, set out uh, to do. Uh, I, I don't think that um, you know he acknowledges all all of the the you know the problems or, or limitations of the movement that he helped to start. And, uh, you know, we argued about about some of that, uh, you know, about the attitude of the public interest movement towards people who went into government and uh, uh, people who were, uh, you know, the labor unions. Uh, to what extent uh, was the public interest movement, uh, you know, uh, critiquing those institutions as well and really leading a generation of younger liberals to view them with disdain, some disdain uh, and thinking that you could find a career instead outside, more, a more pure uh, career outside in, in nonprofit advocacy. So let's move to today. We President Biden is attempting to revive a kind of New Deal uh, style of big government with a three and a half trillion dollar infrastructure uh, plan. What should he learn from this past uh, to more successfully sell it, which it remains to be seen whether he can? It does. Well, I mean, I think one important uh, part of this story uh, is to recognize that uh, government action is not uh, inherently good just by the fact that it's being undertaken by the government. And that's why I think it's so important. The, the better of the build back better uh, slogan is, is so crucial, because if you go back to the 1950s and 1960s uh, and, and think about infrastructure, for example, you know, infrastructure fights over infrastructure are the origin of the uh, modern environmental movement in many ways. I mean, it is uh, fights over highways and dams and uh, airports and dredging and pipelines. I mean, so if, if you're just going to build back and uh, build up infrastructure, 
infrastructure, uh, in many ways, you, you could end up in many of the, with, with many of the same problems. Um, uh, so the better is crucial. You know, we need wind farms, uh, you know, wind, wind turbines uh, as opposed to oil pipelines. We need mass transit instead of new highways. Uh, and I think that trying to uh, think about how do you produce better, uh, better results from this government investment is, is crucial. Um, I think another important uh, lesson uh, is the uh, uh, is sort of coming to terms with the messiness of, of uh, government action, and I think this is where uh, Democrats are. You know, I think are, have made some progress in realizing that they can't uh, they can't let perfect be the enemy of the good, uh, and that there's that when you're trying to accomplish uh, things, uh, that they may not be uh, they may not be perfect. Uh, government action is a this is a, a, a massive uh, uh, structure with many uh, compromises and uh, coalitions that are being uh, forged. And, uh, and I guess the challenge, you know, the question is whether, whether the overall package is a net good uh, uh, as opposed to, um, you know, attacking individual pieces of it and thinking that that, that should bring down the whole package. I mean, those, those are a few, you know, general uh, uh, ideas. Um, You know, I wonder if what your thoughts are now where this intense distrust of government that you kind of chronicle the tortured path to how we got here. Here we are now where it has taken a very deadly turn with the coronavirus, where people are so distrustful of government that they're falling prey to conspiracy theories and dying, you know, where we have a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Um, Now, part of this uh, this doesn't just happen. You know, there has been a uh, decades long campaign, famously Grover Norquist, the big conservative leader, talking about drowning government in the bathtub was the goal. And you have the Koch brothers pouring billions into repealing the whole administrative state. But now we've come to this moment where this sort of toxic combination of anti-government, anti-authority, anti-science has led to this very deadly outcome are you surprised by this? What insight do you have on how this can be undone? Hmm. Well, we do. We live in a very difficult media environment uh, where uh, there are a lot, lot and political environment where there are a lot of powerful entities that are uh, you know, using uh, the attack on government institutions to further their uh, for their own uh, interests. Uh, and, and that does make it e- extremely uh, challenging. Um, I think that uh, you can also see in the uh, criticism of uh, both the, the FDA and the CDC, uh, some of the challenges of government action uh, where, where people are uh, quite, you know, often you know, quite frustrated with how those government institutions are acting and criticizing them and attacking them and, uh, you know, attacking the, the leaders of, of the public health response. And I think that that uh, is, you know, that the those attacks go back to the uh, you know the, some of the public interest attacks that I, that I, I describe, and I think the thing that um, you know we need to figure out how to uh, uh, hold hold together is is how you can both be critical of the government response, but also ultimately uphold uh, the importance of a co- of collective action on the on behalf of uh, of the government. Um, you know, I, I I think it's still to be seen uh, exactly how this will people will look back on this and and what the ultimate ultimate. Uh, you know, judgment will be. It, it's you know, in some ways astonishing to me that some you know, political leaders have not uh, uh, been held more responsible for uh, the outcomes right now in in some states where they've you know been 
dismissing vaccination and there are tremendous consequences uh, to that for, for the, the populations of those, those states. It's really surprising to me that there isn't more accountability. I, I don't have a, an easy answer for, for how, how, to, how to address that. What do you what would you like to see the Biden administration do that would make a meaningful difference around the climate crisis? Well, it's 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 difficult to know exactly what uh, is going to be achievable. Uh, I mean, I, I, th- I think that spending money seems to be uh, easier politically uh, right now than uh, than regulating. Uh, um, well, although regulating is crucial. So I guess uh, probably spending a lot of money uh, to turbocharge uh, the clean energy economy and bring down uh, costs uh, and make it, you know, make it, make it possible to make a, tr- a faster transition. Uh, I think that may be the most successful you know, strategy. I mean, ideally uh, I, I count me in favor of uh, trying to, uh, you know, bring pricing to bear. Uh, on the carbon economy, but I, th- I think that consumers would really benefit from costs that showed the uh, sort of co- carbon content, the, the the climate significance of their purchases, uh, whether it's businesses purchasing things or individuals. Uh, so I think pricing is very crucial and, and and regulation. I think that the administration could do a lot around information, uh, you know, related to public health. Uh, the evidence on uh, air pollution uh, and its consequences uh, really shows that if you cleaned up uh, the uh, particulate matter associated with the uh, with 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 uh, coal and 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 other petro petro uh, industry industries, uh, you'd have a tremendous benefit for public health, uh, and I think that there's a lot to be gained uh, there as well. So uh, a lot of challenges. I think they should they should seize the ones that are attainable. Okay. Um, well, and finally, as you uh, you know reflect on the history that you've written about how. Uh, the left may have unwittingly set the table for the backlash of the right uh, just 20 years after the 60s. What would you hope would be a message of a modern progressive movement as relates to government and the role of government in their lives? Because we are at an inflection point where everybody is hoping the government can save us from the climate, from the pandemic. What's the message that we should have going forward for that? That's, that's a great question. I mean, I think there are two, there are a couple of things that I would emphasize. You know, one is that we need to actively defend the government uh, and its purposes and uh, the pu- public goods and the, and the role of public institutions. Uh, I, I think though that my, my, you know, my, my, my dream would be that we could find a way to craft a message that, in, that, that combined uh, uh, Active government with uh, with the idea of, uh, of of continuous reform and improvement, um, and that we would sort of come to terms with uh, complicated, flawed institutions that are inevitably flawed. Uh, we're not going to have a perfect government, uh, and when you try to move through large bureaucracies and through our federalist system, uh, uh, it, it's inevitably going to be uh, a, a compromised outcomes. Uh, and And I think that liberals really need to figure out how how to come to terms with uh, exercise power um, and, uh, and, and, and pursuing uh, common goods, common benefits uh, through this flawed system, uh, and that they can both articulate a positive vision uh, and, and be committed to a constant reform uh, uh, and seeing that as, as, a, as a single package, uh, uh, that we're, we're, we're in favor of active government, and we believe that we're going to con- you know, continuously try to improve uh, how, how we deliver it. Okay. Well, Professor Paul Sabin, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's great. Great talking with you. 
That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. 